0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So, if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys, as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, our guest this week is Jackie Wu. Jackie Wu is an amazing friend of mine in the fitness industry. We met at a seminar we were doing in uh, Chatsworth Park in Los Angeles, uh, where we were teaching, of course, movement in trees. And Jackie shared with me a story about how she'd actually broken her back and helped heal herself from movement in trees. So by the way, I was really intrigued by who she was and, and what she built for herself in uh, the movement industry. She was somebody who was an absolute joy to have at the workshop. She just moved really well. She had an amazing enthusiasm, and she was very knowledgeable. By the end of the weekend, she was helping me figure out some health problems that I was suffering with at that time. And so we've stayed in touch over the years and always uh, really looked forward to chances to work together, or get to know each other better. And I think that she has just an immense amount to share. She presented at the environment conference that I helped host last year. And did uh, a whole section on using play and therapy, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. It really took some of the best ideas that we've been pushing forward with, um, with Evolving Play into a context that we haven't worked in within therapy. And that was incredibly intriguing to me. And I just really wanted to get Jackie on the show and share her insights with you. I think you guys will get a ton out of it. So, um, if you didn't know, we now have a new support model for the Evolving Play podcast. We are now offering a Podcast Plus membership, which gives you access to live calls with us and being able to ask questions um, to me and the speaker after um, after the podcast is complete. So check out the link in the description and uh, make sure to to join us for that. We have online dedicated forums as well. And I'll be doing Q and A's based on all of the stuff covered in the podcast over a given month each month. So tons of, of interesting stuff for you guys. If you join us, and of course, this is a listener supported podcast. So, doing that helps us keep uh, bringing amazing guests on and keep getting this edited and out to you guys. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, Jackie Wu. Jackie, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's a pleasure to uh, get the chance to speak with you.
1: Thank you so much. This is really exciting. Um, It's an honor to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, You and I met at a seminar that I was teaching in uh, Chatsworth Park and over the course of that seminar you told me you had healed a broken back um, through tree climbing. So that was a story I had never heard before. So let's start there. Um, How did you heal your back with tree climbing?
2: Uh, Okay, so um,
1: very quick background story on the back. I broke it I found out later actually it was broken in two different spots but the the first break um the the one that i knew about was just on the l2 it was a, a burst fracture so um that part of the spine instead of looking like a square block now looks like a wedge of cheese um that is permanent and forever and um So I didn't do regular physical therapy for it. I kind of went through my own process of, you know, rehabbing myself and just kind of listening to my body of what felt good, what didn't feel good, and just kind of like learning about my body through paying attention. And um, later on, as my body was able to um, withstand just normal daily activities like walking and sitting and you know, doing a plank for more than 10 seconds, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I started getting more into my regular life, which was all about play. And I'm the kind of person who, um, I've never been able to sit still. I've never been able to, you know, just kind of like see a rock and not climb it. (laughs) Um, if I see something that's off the ground, I want to jump on it, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, Tree climbing, I found um, just like naturally, like it just kind of came to me naturally, right? Cause it's it's something that's off the ground and it looks like fun. So I decided that I would try to um, climb it one day. And um, I had never really tree climbed before that uh, because I had this fear of heights <laughs> um, and the tree climbing thing was a little scary for me. So um, I started to get into the tree climbing and I realized that um, Climbing trees um, makes you really, really pay attention to how your body moves, what it wants to do, what it doesn't want to do, um, fears and um, different limitations. And the cool thing about climbing trees is that it's always gonna be different. Like you can do as many box squats or um, uh, box jumps and, and, and deadlifts and whatever as you want. You can get really strong, but it's always gonna be the same. Right. And yes, you can get stupid, stupid, strong like that, but it's always going to be the same. And so you hear a lot of um, performance lifters, you know, strain their back from picking up their keys or tying their shoes because they're not used to um, the, the different movements and the different demands of the body. And so something that I love about tree climbing that really helped with um, with my back. And actually I use tree climbing for other things too. Like um, I, hurt, I hurt my knee a couple of years ago and tree climbing again was a big part of uh, that healing process as well. Um, but the reactional portion of the tree climbing, because you have to not only pay attention, but you have to um, use your, your natural reaction to, um, you know, balance yourself and catch yourself and grab and you know all these different things to respond to the tree um, that actually improves your uh rate of healing and it actually strengthens the neural connection between the brain and the body and um in turn strengthens the overall joint or the body or whatever you're trying to strengthen with that because you're you're using more sensory with it a lot more sensory input with it so it's not just like doing the same movement over and over again you're actually paying attention you're using all your senses really right you, you're using your vision you're using your hearing right in case you're, you hear something like kind of cracking um fine touch right in case something starts to fall a little bit or whatnot and also grip i mean um i mean i'm not using taste or anything but uh you're using a little bit of everything right um and that uh, really actually does help with uh, therapy and strengthening the body in all sorts of way. So that was a fun way for me to um, strengthen my back and also my knee quite a bit. So, and then also the fact that tree climbing is super fun um, and you can do so many different things in a tree, like everything that you do on a ground you can also do in the tree, right? You just have to be a little bit more creative. So um, that kept my interest. <laughs> um, I, I've never really been one for all the repetitive, boring stuff. Um, I can't even count to 10 sometimes. Um, so the tree climbing stuff and just doing things in trees um, was it was enough to like very, just to grab my interest and hold it so that I would want to continue to do it. And just even the, the aspect of wanting to do something that strengthens your body as well.
0: So yeah. You're talking about the sort of motivational drive, which is really you know key. And I think it's something that's really forgotten in the in the um, therapy context a lot, right? Yeah. It wasn't a problem in, in therapy is the problem of compliance. Um yeah. and then another thing that I yeah you know getting the sensory integrated with the motor, right? in a better way. So you get stronger, stronger, you know, total integration of the system. Um, you know, I thought a lot about the, the same things in relationship to tree climbing and, and the idea that, I mean, for one thing, it's just a really rich environment, you know, in, the, um, in the, uh, the therapy world, there's this talk about like, how do we create enriched environments, proprioceptively enriched environments in order to improve therapeutic outcomes. And so there's not a more proprioceptively enriched environment than moving around in a tree. Absolutely sensorally rich environment. So the last time that uh, I spoke with you, I believe, was your presentation for the embodiment conference. and you were talking about play there in the context of therapy. And that's something that, you know, with Evolving Play, we've always thought would be interesting to go in that direction. And uh, you know, when you presented your ideas and I was like, oh, she's she's there. She really, she's really mapped this out. And I think it's such a it's pretty revolutionary really in my opinion. I don't think there's a lot of people who have tried to blend those two worlds. So you can talk a little bit about, um, well, first of all, let's just start with like, what, what does play mean to you? And why is it key to your approach?
1: Oh, Play can mean a lot of different things to me. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of different types of play, right? But um, some of the the components of play um, to make something play versus a chore or an obligation. Um, first of all, is the, the desire to perform it, is that the desire to participate right? Yep. If somebody does not desire to participate, it is no longer play. That's just, that's what it is. Um, and so so there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of um, reaction, right? Um, and involving multiple stimuli other than just doing like the same kind of motions over and over again. So you have to have some type of reaction um, involved in it. So um, uh, you get to respond. Um, and then a third aspect of play that I think is uh, crucial is that it just holds your interest so that you lose the sense of time, right? And some people call that fun, some people call it interesting, some people call it, um, you know, determ- like determined to finish a task, whatever you want to call it, right? But the whole thing is that it captures your attention enough so that you want to continue to be involved with it, okay? Yeah. Um, everything else is just, you know, just. Uh, Different types of play, right? Like you can play chess, you can play soccer, you can play um, climbing in a tree, right? You can play all these different things. You can play made-up games, and so um, based on those things, um, that takes away that 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 takes care of the compliance issue that we we're just talking about with therapy, uh, because one of the biggest issues um, with therapy, like traditional therapies for any any age group, um, but especially the young ones and the old ones. Um, is compliance, right? People just don't wanna do it, myself included, right? Like if it's boring, I don't wanna do it, um, even though I know it's good for me. So that takes care of the compliance issue. And then when you make it fun, um, people want to do it anyway. Like It's like eating something that's really good for you, but it also tastes really good to you. It's like a double bonus kind of thing. Um, So that being said, um, the different types of play, we can actually use them in a therapeutic method or in a therapeutic manner um, to just observe, to see how people move in these play settings, right? You can use different games to um, expose uh, people's weaknesses, um, features and and things that uh, basically where people don't want to move, where people um, are avoiding, right? And you can use that to see, okay, well, um, I can see their knee hurts. So that's what they, or they said that their knee hurts, right, but let's see how they move. Let's see why their knee hurts, right? And that might be because they're using their knee to compensate for um, not being able to use their hip properly or not being able to use their ankle properly. But it, with play, you can see in which um, in which dimensions, in which planes, right? And also with which types of sensories? like does it include the arm and the shoulder or is it, does it include the back or you know, what does it include? Um, and also where else are they lacking? Because oftentimes it's not just um, a physical issue. Oftentimes it's actually a sensory issue that causes the physical issue, right? So one thing that's really cool with play is that you have to involve sensory input into it. Right. So, um, you can, uh, check out different, like, um, with vision and, and, and with hearing and, um, just like tactile things like that, even changing the, uh, plane of movement. So you're involving the vestibular system as well too. And then, um, so you can use play as an assessment, just to kind of see like where they're lacking. And then after that, um, you can make up a game or have some games in your game bank and, um, use those to show the person and that system, because the the, the person is a complete system of different systems, right? Um, That it is actually safe to use the things that they're afraid to use. And so it's kind of like holding their hand, baby steps saying, hey, you know, it is okay for you to do this thing that you're afraid to do, right? We're basically just kind of backtracking those things and helping them just um, catch up to the rest of their body. Um, And of course that can also be done through games too. And then um, obviously you can do the reassessment just by doing the previous game to see if anything changed. And then you can, you know, obviously check their normal range of motion see if anything hurts again so on and so forth and that kind of thing. But um, what I find with play is that um, not only are people a lot more compliant on, on uh, participating, but they actually get better faster. They actually show improvement a lot faster than through regular therapy uh, because of the sensory demands and also the, um, uh, the integration of the sensory with the motor control, but then also the attitude, right? The attitude, the intention, the, the, the energy that gets put into it. Um, they're a lot more willing to do it. They love it a lot more. And all of that kind of combined, um, is this fantastic, um, you know, result that they, they learn a lot quicker. Their brain learns a lot quicker and they just feel better, faster.
0: Uh, so playing the, the devil's advocate just a little bit, like I'm imagining if you're a traditional therapist, you listen to this, you might be, thinking, isn't this a little bit chaotic, right? Like how do you, you know, you're trying to be b- very precise in the prescription of, of of the type of loading that you're giving to a specific tissue at a specific time, you know, within the cycle of a of, a, of an injury recovery, for instance. And if we introduce a game, don't we potentially um, kind of... Uh, introduce too much chaos to that system where we might overstress uh, a potential injury and you know put our, our client in danger.
1: Yes. There that that's when it um it's that's when it's really important to be able to recognize when um when is too much stress how much is too much stress. And how to recognize those symptoms of that, and um, I actually teach that in my fair play course of like how to recognize if something is too much, or actually if uh, when sometimes it's too little stress as well, because the brain actually learns better when there's a little bit of danger involved, when there's a little bit of threat, but not too much. So Mm -hmm. if we um, we can actually kind of hack the nervous system by adding a little bit of stress. To the system or a little bit of threat to the system to help it learn faster but we can also um recognize when it's too much stress and then we have to take away some threat and just add more safety
2: Yeah. So more,
1: yeah there are definitely components of that
0: i was so i've had a little bit of a lower back injury that's that's been um been bothering me recently i I heard it many years ago. I was doing a, like a 12 foot front foot drop and my my lower back hyperextended uh, on the landing. And I don't know, you know, I never got an MRI or anything because I don't think those things are actually that diagnostic and they wouldn't have changed what I did. So, so I suspect i herniated to do this, but, um, you know, I, I've worked on it and recovered, but it, it pops up every once in a while. And, I, you know, I, I don't suspect a lot of times it's just kind of the lowest, lowest, you know, um port for the stress to pour out on but this time in particular it was very strange because um i was just doing a very simple movement and it suddenly flared up and uh i know but i was like okay i've been over training right it's just clearly an overtraining issue right it's clearly just a signal in my body being overstressed um but anyways i was out training and uh i I was in Seattle, I, I moved to Bellingham recently, which is an hour and a half from Seattle. And so I, I was out in Seattle training with um, my, my friends there and the trees, like my favorite trees and stuff. Really wanted to get a good training session. And I was going through my, my process of warming up and um, I was still kind of stuck, it just wasn't quite warming up. And I was training barefoot, which is normally really good for me. But I had this sense that like in this particular context, That little bit of cold and a little bit of extra pressure on my feet was amping the the threat level in my body too high and that I could just take a little bit of threat away by putting my shoes back on and that my nervous system could calm enough to allow my body to warm up which is precisely what happened it was very interesting because I ended up training um for three hours and I did um, a lot of front flips which are the movement that is most potentially irritating for my back yeah and I was in less pain at the end of that session and an hour and a half drive home than I had been before the session in that morning when I woke up.
1: That's awesome.
0: So I think that idea of how we modulate threat is really key for people to understand And I think sometimes when people think play they we don't we don't have a really good language around the way that we are we think about people know how to progress. Uh, a squat, right? It's like, okay, I can, I, I, can be, I, can, I can use graded exposure to the squat pattern fairly uh, intelligently. At least I can, you know, have loading of the plates and then maybe I can play with different, like, you know a box squat to limit the depth that I want you to go to and then increase the depth. I, maybe I can switch you to a safety squat bar in order to decrease the threat to your shoulders or maybe move to a trap bar deadlift, blah, 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 right? I feel like people are relatively intelligent in the industry about ways that we can do that. But what it seems like is very lacking to me is an understanding of how we actually modulate games such that they uh, appropriately challenge what we want to be challenged and create a container that's sufficiently safe. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how you specifically do that in a rehab context. Like let's, let's imagine somebody who's come in with say an Achilles tendon tear and they're recovering from the Achilles tendon tear. How would you start to layer in play and at what levels and how would you kind of play with the games to create sufficient safety while giving them that optimal threat level and intrinsic motivation?
1: Mm Well, it's kind of hard to say like, okay, they've got an Achilles tendon issue. So then everybody does this game, right? Like it doesn't kind of, it doesn't really work that way. And like,
2: I mean, you know that,
1: um, but we can use that as an example and we can use some example of something, you know, but, um, but just, to, just to make clear that just because someone has Achilles tendon uh, issues, doesn't mean that they will benefit from this particular game, let's just say.
0: Because there's always going to be a whole other ecology of issues.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm you know, training history, other injury patterns, emotional, blah, blah, blah.
1: Exactly, exactly. So um, that being said, uh, just kind of thinking about a a game that might be beneficial for them, um, could be rail balancing, right? Or just like um, uh, jumping from rocks to rocks or whatnot. So rail balancing, um, and there's a lot of different types of rails, right? There's um, the flat rails, there's um, round rails, or slanted rails, there's, Rails that are like made of wood and you know um, stone, was that whatever? And just um, bringing that up, there's that itself has a lot of different uh, options to play with, right? So what we could do is we could first kind of see, we can assess uh, to see how they do on just like a flat rail or basically like whatever's available, right? And just kind of see how they balance on a rail and um, how they move, right? And um I actually this is part of the uh, the embodiment conference. I um I, I shared a video of me actually doing a rail balancing thing and how I fixed the rail balancing. Um but uh like you could just you remember I think
0: that one, isn't it? Huh? Is that on your Instagram? Uh, it might
1: be, it might be. Yeah, yeah I was
0: yeah, looking
1: at a really quick the, clip of it.
0: I just got a clip of you basically working on the rail failing and then going to a smaller, less challenging uh uh, circumstance and then working your way up and sort of getting your body attuned in a situation that had less threat than coming back to it
1: exactly exactly and actually the 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 thing that I jumped to after the railing because I was trying like so many different times for that for that rail and it was a a, it was an upward slope for that rail too. it was a round metal upward slope was probably about like three feet up Um, and usually I'm pretty good at those kind of things but for whatever reason that day I wasn't doing too hot with it and um uh so what i did was i there was like another like mini uh there's a lower to the ground and there were the rail was also uphill but it was um broken up into pieces by like cement spheres or whatever they were it was kind of like you do a little bit of rail and then there's a sphere and then a little bit of rail and then there's there's a sphere and it went in different directions right and so was some, And that was also important too, right? Cause it basically, it involves more stimulus and it makes it so that it's not just the same boring thing, right? Because if something is very long um, and very, uh, as far as like distance wise, it might seem very intimidating, but if something is a short distance, um, it, it'll seem a lot more doable. So I decided to kind of hop on that and I did one round of, of that. And that was enough to remind my brain that it was safe to do these movements on this rail. You know, and then I hop back on the regular rail um, and I did it with no problem whatsoever. I just kind of like, I, I could almost run up it. Um, uh, it, it became that easy. Um, but uh, for someone like with the, the, the Achilles issue, right? Like it could be because they're um, overusing their Achilles tendon, or their calf because they're trying to balance with the calf, right? Um, versus uh, like using all the other muscles to help balance, right? Um, so that could be something that that you could do. I mean, if you don't have any rails or things like that um, near you, you just kind of see what you have. Um, you could even go as far as like drawing a straight line or drawing lines. It could it could be like crooked lines, or just say, okay, now I want you to step on this rock and now this rock and this rock and just kind of go in a pattern and have them aim somewhere, right? Um, and that would actually be a a, a Reduce a threat because there's no height involved with it, right? Yep. So you kind of reduce the threat by lowering them closer to the ground. They don't have to worry about falling, but they can still worry or they can still focus on the balancing and, and, and the different stimulus and, and um, trying to um, get their foot and their body in a place stable enough, if that makes sense,
2: and mm-hmm. balancing,
1: right? Um, hot Lava is also another fun game to play. So like if you're in a gym, gym type setting or whatnot, you can place different objects around or even just you know at home or in the backyard, just play Hot Lava. That's also a really great one too. Um, but yeah, so like different ways to add threat, remove threat. Um, if they wanted to increase the amount of threat for that particular rail game, um, you could do um, the rail going backwards, right? you can do it crawling. That will also involve, (laughs) that's a fun one to do.
0: (laughs) In the parkour community, one of my least favorite persons.
1: (laughs) Yeah, rail crawling, um, rail crawling backwards. Um, You can even do side shuffles and um, uh, you can do jumps and hops on it. Obviously those are a lot more difficult so you don't put somebody on that as an assessment. Um, But yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that you can do stuff. And then I mean, even having a two by four um, on the ground, right? Having them balance on a two by four—that's also a really great re- um, regression for that, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like we need to to do the all usual caveats, right? Like, obviously, if you have torn your Achilles tendon, talk to a medical professional. And make sure you're <laughs> you're you're getting a, a proper assessment of this. You know, don't just take this advice and yeah. try to run with it. Um, uh I would say that try to find a professional who understands these things though because there's a lot out there who don't and I think that's all these these caveats but I wanted to share a little bit of my own experience because I think it's a little bit potentially an interesting thing so I tore my Achilles tendon in 2010 and it was the end of July and so you know I think I'm trying to remember I think it was like three weeks where I was pretty much just not supposed to load it in any way at all and then I was then I was dorsiflexing it and i think quite much before i was told that i should i started standing on it right and you know just just trying to load it without without getting a strong contraction i would have my hands you know i'd have my other foot like supporting me mm. and then what i did was i started going to the lake and i would get into the lake and i would i would at first just try to stand on that leg underwater Mm. and that's an interesting example of of modulating the threat because there's very low forces involved but there's a lot of instability yes right so i'm getting uh, a stimulus and then as as it improved i started doing a lot of jumping underwater Mm. and then running underwater and uh is highly not recommended um but as far as tapping into that play i i was flipping off the dock into the water (laughs) right you know of course uh, so I was doing, you know, gainers and Webster's, uh, cause they're one-legged front, uh, one-legged flips in the water, you know, to stay attuned to my body and to be able to capture that thing that was very motivating to me. And that was able to, to sort of give me a sense that I wasn't trapped in this injury in the way that I, that I could have been, um, but yeah, be careful, caution. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's an example of how we can, that's another tool that you can use to modulate threat and to be able to modulate your loading and also add another sensory stimulus, right? When you're yeah. in water, you're you're getting a, a huge amount of quite interesting sensory stimulation.
1: Definitely. I actually just made an Instagram post yesterday about standing in the ocean for, for therapy. And like, it's it's fantastic. I love water therapy. Um, yeah. the, the more natural the water, the better because it's got more stuff going on in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, I love going to, um, yeah, just trying to stand in a, like, you know, where you might be body surfing and getting the currents hitting you and smashing you. I remember like surfing on the Oregon coast and like hat, like coming in off of a wave and then trying to like walk. So there was a current that was pulling us Mm -hmm. down and we walked back like in the water holding the, the surfboards and then you try to kind of like stand in the water and it's like smashing it and just changing
2: it. Like <laughs>
0: yeah. That, that just felt like, I was thinking about like Nassim Taleb's idea of anti-fragility and mm-hmm. like, oh, how much, how much information that is my, my nervous system getting in this circumstance?
2: Yeah.
0: And then recently I've gotten really into Kenny And part of what I liked about Kenny is the experience of of wild water, right? Okay. getting into water that moves you and you have to be aware of the dynamic of It's not just a flat pool. Yeah. Um, again, um, potentially risky behavior, but a <laughs> fascinating medium to work with.
1: I think, um, because you keep bringing up risky, but this is kind of what play is all about, right? It's calculated yeah. risk, right? As as a, as, a, as, a, as a fun thing, like a hobby to do, like we like calculated risks, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So as a therapy, yes, there are calculated risks. And I think it's important to, to teach people, yes, there are risks involved in this, but that's the entire point of it is yeah. that there is risk in it. And that risk is actually going to make us better, but we need to learn how to listen to our body to assess the amount of risk to see if we're ready for that or not. Yeah. Right. And then also like how to build up to that. So, um, and, and actually it's kind of funny, um, recently, uh, I've been getting into acro yoga and mm-hmm. I just started it like August of last year or whatnot. So it hasn't even been a year. Um, but I started out like, just like how most people do as, as a flyer, right? Because a flyer is like the fun part, you get to make pretty shapes and all this kind of stuff and whatever. And then, um, one day I decided, I'm like, let me try to base you know, I'm like, let me, let me try to base.
0: I don't get to try and start out as a flyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually,
1: <laughs> well, actually, I, I bet you I can. I mean, um, when we meet up, I uh, I will base you. You can fly. We'll yeah. do this. All right. Um, but yeah, so like one day I'm like, right, let me let me try to base. Let me see what, what, what happens here. So I started basing a little bit. And then I realized my knee felt absolutely amazing from it. I was getting so much... Um, uh, stimulus for my for my knee that I wasn't getting in my normal training and I was yeah. like this is a very big missing component for my knee rehab and so I started basing more and more and then you know as I, as I got more involved in, in yoga, I you know you can start to see all these different poses and flows that people do and you're like oh I want to do this I want to do this and I'm like okay I want to be able to do all this kind of stuff, but I can I can feel like there's still a little bit of instability in my knee. What do I need to do to bridge that gap? Right. And so what I ended up doing was I started using um L-basing and acro yoga, so being the base laying down as um my knee rehab. And I started to increase the load for the people that I was basing. So usually the flyers are like a hundred-pound girls, you know, they're tiny little things. Just, you can talk, they're cheerleaders, right? And so I'm like, okay, well I've got strong legs because I've got that martial arts background. So most of my most of my um, muscle muscle mass is my lower half of the body, but my by my knee was like my weakest link. So I'm like, okay, how do I do this? I can I can just have heavier people on me, right? I'm just going to base heavier people. So I started basing heavier and heavier people, and obviously these were ended up being guys, right? Because none of the like usually the girls are just super tiny. And so I started basing guys more and more, and then word got out that I was a stable, strong base for guys. And then all these guys have lately started wanting to fly on me. I'm like, cool. Yeah, this is great for everybody because usually the the people who base and never get a chance to fly, they can fly now, you know, and it's, it's good for everybody. But what ended up happening throughout all that is because I'm increasing the load on my knee in that position. And it's something fun that i like to do um my knee just got stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where um just like i think it was a couple of weeks ago i had somebody doing a handstand on my legs
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i didn't think that i could do that like like several months ago i'm like there's no way that that would be possible but it was an easy thing to do I'm like this is absolutely amazing you know, so just the amount of, of stability increase and strength increase that I that I achieved from um, I mean, even just like December till now, it's been wild. It's been absolutely wild. Like you can I don't think you could get that much um gain from regular rehab or, or strength and conditioning um in that amount of time um as I did with uh with acro yoga. And um I mean, even with my back and my knee, uh just two days ago, uh, we were at, I was at a jam because we have these, you know, these meetup jams every week. Right. And, um, I learned this, uh, this, this basing technique called too high. So it's a pose where somebody stands on your shoulders and you're standing up Mm -hmm. and like, usually what happens with my back is like, I want to keep my upper body load limit as light as possible. So, like backpacks or anything, all that stuff. Like I make it as minimal as pop- possible. I try not to carry anything if, if at all, um, if at all possible, um, because I was always afraid that it would hurt my back. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm like, okay, well, let me try this, this, uh, this thing because my original plan was to be able to do a standing base for somebody to do a hand to hand handstand. So they're doing a handstand while I'm standing and I'm holding them right. Um, and there's not a lot of lady bases, like home lady bases, there's not a lot of lady bases that will do that because they don't have the strength, right, and they don't have the stability for it. I'm like, I think I can do that. So part of it, uh, part of my um, bridging that gap was to make sure that I can take the load um, axially. And so I was, you know, uh, having people stand on my hands um, on my shoulders and on my hands while I was in a half kneeling position to just kind of like get used to them. They get used to me, that kind of thing. And then someone saw me and they're like, Hey, what if I, can I stand on your shoulders and do this too high thing? I'm like, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> like, let's try it. And she was like, just under hundred pounds. I'm like, Oh, actually, this actually doesn't feel bad. This actually is pretty good. And then I tried somebody else and she, and, um, she ended up being 145 pounds. I'm like, this is, this is doable. And then someone came up to me and he's like, can I stand on you and juggle? (laughs) I'm like, maybe, how much do you weigh? And so he's like 155 pounds. Um, But I mean, he's a juggler, he's slack lines and he's does unicycle flaming juggle stuff, right? Like he's amazing. So I'm like, okay, I I trust you. So he climbed on top, he started juggling. This is actually pretty cool. Like I feel great, you know, doing this. Um, And then there was another guy who's six foot, foot three hundred and like 75 pounds he's like can I get up there like kind of as a joke but also not you know and I'm like I just put this other guy on on me who's 155 pounds and was juggling I'm like I'm sure that you can come up there so he got up there and I'm like I'm doing this like this is actually really cool it was a it was a very big milestone for me um because I had so much fear in my head for the last decade about axial loading. And then Mm -hmm. here I am standing in grass with the six foot three, 175 pound dude on my shoulders. And we're hanging out there for a while, you know? Um, And I was actually able to do some of this stuff like just standing on one leg. And I was standing on the leg that had the injured knee. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I'm like one leg balancing on on the injured knee with people like axial loaded on my shoulders. I'm like, this is absolutely amazing. Like I feel incredible. And um, not to not to mention that this was after a ten hour drive from Tahoe <laughs> and five days of snowboarding, you know. So um, like I I definitely wasn't in my best physical condition or my best mental condition, but I was still able to do that, and I felt amazing afterwards. So um, physical rehab via play. I've felt so much more gained from it and so much uh, faster than I have ever with um, any other type of rehab.
0: So I see kind of two things there. One is that when you're engaged in play, you're actually getting a, a more diverse stimulus to the nurse, yes. right? Yes. And then the other aspect is that your you um, your motivational state is very different, right? Um, you all mentioned the idea that play is something that you do Um, because it's enjoyable in the moment. Uh, I was introduced to this term by my friend, uh, John Vankie, who talks about autotelic, right? The goal of the exercise is the exercise itself. So you can be in there doing a knee exercise for your knee, which may be low motivationally, right? Not not engage a very high kind of aroused motivational state, um, um, but it's targeted. Or you can do this, this, uh, this basing thing, and you're getting a lot of stimulation to the knee. Um, but also you're having a lot of fun. And so I'm curious how you see that, uh, you know, the simple version of the question is like, how do you see the balance between these two things? But I'm curious to, to how you think about the emotional component versus physical component and how you look at helping people address both components um, within therapy. let's say.
1: Um, one of the things I'm a, a very big component of is um, doing what you want to do
2: Yeah.
1: And, and also like if you don't feel good doing something, don't do it. If you feel like something is off, don't do it, right? It's okay to take a rest day. It's okay to go easy. It's okay to say no, right? Know your boundaries and draw them, right? Um, because there are days where I'll show up to some of these acro jams, like, because I, I love the social aspect of it. Right. And we hanging out with my friends and and all this kind of stuff. I get to see like cool things happen, but some days I don't feel either physically on, or I don't feel mentally on. And if, if I feel that I'm not going to put myself or other people in danger, um, because I have that little bit of weakness, you know, like. Uh, especially like as a base, if I don't feel on, I'm not putting anybody on my feet. I'm not putting anybody on my hands because if I drop them, that's my responsibility, right? Like I I'm, it's my responsibility as a base to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I don't feel like I can hold them up, I'm not going to do it. If I feel like I'm um, mentally or emotionally distracted, um, I won't do it or I just won't try harder things. I'll just stick to very light things. And Um, it's, it's, I think it's really important to be able to pay attention to, um, your physical state and your mental state and your emotional state, because they all come into play when, um, when you're, when you're doing stuff like this. Um, and speaking of the emotional state, uh, one of the biggest, uh, plateaus, um, that I, that I broke through for my knee rehab, um, was actually, uh, breaking up with my ex. Mm -hmm. And after that had happened, there was, it was just like something just like some door just blew open and it allowed me to actually strength train the physical aspect of my knee. Cause before that I wasn't able to do anything like that at all. Like it just, nothing was working. And so it, it, there was a very big emotional component with my knee as well. And so once that got over, um, then it allowed for, um, my I need to start getting the physical stimulation that it needed and accepting it. Um, so I, I do like to um, share with people like that part, even though some people are still kind of on the fence about like emotional stuff, mental stuff, being involved with their, their physical body, bec- especially when it comes to a part of their body that is not a normal part that's associated with stress, right? Like people know that like neck pain and back pain um, and headaches are <clears throat> commonly associated with stress, but they don't understand that, that can be anywhere in the body that can be reflected in your pinky it can be reflected in your elbow your 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 knee your your toes right your ankles wherever um, it can be reflected in organs right and people don't really quite understand that um they, they haven't made that link because it's just been associated with neck headache back so i want to yeah so i want to yeah, so I, I like kind of get that out there to them and say hey you know what my knee has had issues for years. Didn't know that until about like uh, two and a half years ago. And when I, at first when I started trying to rehab, I tried all these different things and nothing was working. But then the first breakthrough that I had was breaking up with my ex. And Mm -hmm. they're like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And it, and it's not even like the first part of my body that that type of thing has happened either. It's like, okay, our emotions will actually be stored in our body. And sometimes you have to address those first before you can make any type of physical um, improvements. So um, I'm glad, I'm really glad that you brought up that part because it, I think it needs to be, be um, promoted a bit more and just let people be made aware of.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been just noticing it in relationship to training, right? Like mm-hmm. um, when we when we teach our groups, right? We start with with a series of games. And the games uh, work to to warm the body up and to move them through sort of a diverse range of motion. But they also get them smiling and laughing. And I was thinking, about, well, how does that affect the, the rest of the training session? If you start the training session like smiling and laughing, and then also feeling really deeply socially connected to the people around you, how are you gonna? How is that gonna impact the the, the training? And you know, <laughs> my answer to that is it's gonna be a big positive impact, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, smiling, and laughing in itself is a type of therapy. Um, yeah. it, it elevates your mood, it changes your energy, and um, like some people don't believe in the whole energy stuff; they have, they think it's all woo woo and what and whatnot, and it doesn't really affect the body, but it really does. Um, and so. Right. Yeah, like even if you're you're not in the mood to smile, if you just fake a smile and just force yourself to smile and look at yourself in the mirror for like five seconds, like that will change your day right there, right? Um, I mean, you think about passing by a stranger when you're walking down the street and they smile at you, right? And, or even not smile at you, you just see them smiling. The smiles are contagious and they just, they they change everything, so. Allowing someone to smile during their, um, during their therapy, right, is so important because it lightens up their entire, um, their entire body, their entire being, right? And when, you, when you're more light, you're more playful, you get to move around more, you're less stiff and you just being that allows your body to move better. Um, It's kind of like how um, like breathing and the relaxation stuff and the, 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 the cold baths and all that kind of stuff that people are doing right now is a trend to try to calm themselves down and get all the stress out because it's the stress tension that's holding you tight, which is making you not be able to move well. Right. So instead of, yeah. So instead of like, you know, going to cold baths, I mean, there's obviously other benefits to cold baths and that kind of thing, but like, instead of like doing all that, why don't we just combine it all into play, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know? Um, So having like telling people to smile is one thing, right? Because like, let's just say you're, you're, you're doing a set of like um, push-ups or whatever, right? Someone's miserable and you're the trainer and you say, oh, you should smile, smile when you do this, give me a pretty smile, right? Because they know the impact of a smile because it, you know, it tricks them into having fun. But when you don't have to trick somebody into having fun where they're actually having fun, it's, it's a lot more complete, it's a lot more whole, it's a lot more impactful. Um, And then also it relaxes them um, emotionally too, because a lot of times when they're, they're injured and they come see you for therapy, they're already stressed and they're worried and they're anxious and depressed or whatever they are. Um, And just to get them in a comfortable position where they can relax and just like be mentally and emotionally free from the constraints of the, the injury stress, like mental one and emotional, um, sometimes that's it. Like I've, I've, I've seen multiple people where um, they have chronic injuries because they keep stressing about it. And it's the stress of the injury that makes this, the, the injury chronic. Like it could have been gone a long time ago, but they just keep stressing it and thinking about it. And then they mentally bring it back, if that makes any yeah. sense.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I believe that um, you know, one thing that I've sort of formulated over the years is this idea that that every injury is a psychological injury and that you can heal the tissues. And if, you, if the psychological injury remains, then you're still injured. And so a lot of people are carrying a map in their body, a map in their mind of themselves as an injured person. And it's um, and it's continuing to limit them. We're continuing to send them signals of pain and discomfort in their body. you have to let go of that. Um, but I have this little epiphany that thinking about the why, I feel like this conversation around emotion in the training environment and and, and how we progress and improve athletes is feels very cutting edge and a little bit uh, almost a little bit scary. To open up, like I know you're friends with with Perry Nicholson and. I was listening to Perry on a podcast um, and he was saying, you know, that like lymph is really high on his his list of things that we're going to look at when there's dysfunction. And it's like, you know, the top of the pyramid is emotions, but I don't want to talk about that. Right. <laughs> here it was his idea. And I was just I was just thinking about that. And I was thinking about it, how that kind of plays into the history of science in particular, because, you know, subjective subjectivities are difficult to examine scientifically, Right. And so we had the entire school of behaviorism in psychology, which rejected the, um, the 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 investigation into, and then almost rejected the, even the idea of the underlying, you know, science of emotions or understanding emotions. Um, there's a there's a joke that I like, which is uh, you know, what does a behaviorist say after sex? I don't know what. It was good for you. How was it for me? The the idea being that the only, the only thing that we can really measure is, is external responses, right? So I see you flush and make noise and I know something about, you know, scientifically about your experience, but, you know, (laughs) it's subjectivity. So, um, so I, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about, you know, as a, as a trainer, I could almost imagine a hesitation because this sounds almost like therapy. It's like, I'm like, wait, now, not only do I need to study biomechanics, and I gotta read, um, you know, Franz Bosch and, you know, uh, Nikolai Bernstein, now you now I need to read Carl Rogers and Carl Jung in order to be able to, to, to do my job well. So that seems like, uh, um, potentially like something that people would want to, to drift away from because it's, it's a big it's a uh, putting all the pieces together of this complex dynamic human organism is challenging. And yeah. so yeah, I'm curious if you can speak to how we as an industry maybe can 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 get past that in a way that's not too scary for somebody who's coming up to say, okay, wait, how much how much do I have to take on to be able to do this? Well?
1: <laughs> um that's a really good point. A lot of people are like you bring up the fact that Perry will talk about anything, but when you brought up emotions, like, yeah, but let's not talk about that. Um, there's not <laughs> a lot of things that he will not talk about. So that's, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's cool.
0: That not um, my interview. We talked a lot about him. <laughs> another interview, yeah.
1: Yeah, he'll talk about all the crazy stuff, right? He's like, if you're not on the crazy shit path, right? You're not on the wrong path. Um, anyway though, so emotions, um, when I realized that emotions were such a huge and important component to, um, physical well-being um, I started trying to find different ways to uh, I don't want to say diagnose because I'm not like licensed to say diagnose but um, correlate <laughs> um, correlate emotions with with uh, people's physical pain yeah and um, I learned a bunch of stuff came up with it played, played with a bunch of different things and um, I actually came up with a few different ways where you can actually um, positively correlate, uh, emotions or events or memories and such, such with, uh, with physical movements and physical body. And mm-hmm. so I teach actually a multiple different ways to do that in, um, a few of my courses, just depending on which course it is, I'll teach a different way, right? So if it's a play course, then I'll teach it in a playaway. If it's a manual course, I'll teach it in a manual way and so on and so forth. Um, so I've, I've come up with three different ways that we can, um, that we can find it. And, um, the cool thing, uh, another cool thing about it, cause I think the whole thing's just really cool. Um, another cool thing about it is that because we're not like, well, I mean, I'm not licensed to be like a, a psychotherapist or, or a psychiatrist or anything like that. So I am not legally allowed to ask about people's problems and help them with their problems and all that kind of stuff. Um, I wanted to find a way to get around that. Even though a lot of people are willing to share what they have going on, um, some people don't want to. And some of the things that are actually very uh, deep rooted for people, um, a lot of people don't want to share those, right? Because they're they're very traumatic. And so, or they're embarrassing or, you know, whatever. Um, so I found that you actually, you don't need to even say out loud what these things are. So as long as you learn how to ask questions properly, um, to nav- to help them navigate to um, a specific memory or emotion or, or whatever it is, um, you never have to know what their problem was, and yeah. right. And then the and the thing is like, you never know. Have you never have to know what their problem is, and because of that, you you're not actually giving them advice on what to do with their problem. You're helping them process their emotions. You're helping them process their memories and the events so that their brain. Can actually get off of that broken record, yeah. Right. So, because what from what I've learned about um, traumatic experiences and emotional trauma and PTSD and all that kind of stuff is that it's basically just um, it's unprocessed memories, right? It's an unprocessed me- uh, memories, unprocessed event. So, if you can help them process it in all the ways that they need to process it, um, then they can, you know like i said just kind of get over that uh that broken record and they can move on um so there's different ways to do that and then um sometimes the ptsd affects only mental health sometimes it will affect physical health right and to of course to different degrees so there's ways that we can positively correlate it to um parts of the body and and whatnot so that um if like because people come to me mostly for physical pain and then if I trace, I go the other way. It's like, okay, if, if it is from a a trauma, then, okay, then we'll deal with the the emotional trauma, but I don't start with the emotional trauma because people don't come with, to me with PTSD. Like I'll fix, fix my PTSD. Right. So, um, but yeah, there are definitely ways that you can do this without, um, without breaking any laws or boundaries or rules or anything and still helping, like, still making your client feel comfortable. Um, but also help them get past this whole thing. And then also, um, not making them feel like there's something wrong with them. Cause that's another yeah. thing about like, um, the, the stigma of mental health professionals and going to a mental health professional It's getting better nowadays, but it, there's still a stigma going around saying that, like, you know, if you go to a, 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 a mental therapist of some sort, that there's something wrong with you and then it's embarrassing, right. Or like whatever your problems are, they're, they're embarrassing. You shouldn't have problems. Everybody should be perfect. Right. This is thank you to social media. Um, so this is a way i think where we can help people understand that it's not anything that's necessarily wrong with them it's just that there was just um something that happened that they didn't get to process enough and we just help them process it and that's all it is you know it's no big deal it's kind of like yeah. You know, yeah so um but yeah there's definitely ways to do this play helps a lot too
0: yeah play is a powerful powerful healer Right, and a powerful way to, to go into it and process negative emotions. Yeah. Um, emotions, I mean, I think when we, we think about the, the emotional aspect of training, it doesn't have to be trauma either, right? Yeah there's,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: there's there's just motivation, right? Like, if I'm in a higher motivated state, then I'm going to get more out of my training. And there's also, I think, subtle things that, that are like emotional frames that we adopt that don't serve us very well and that we can fall into, um, you know, like, something like like a negative competition, like an expectation
2: mm-hmm.
0: that somebody is gonna do better than you, right? And, and then a, a habit of sort of not giving it your all just because, because you're, you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: And I don't think that's necessarily a, a result of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's just maybe a, an emotional immaturity that can limit some of these growth. Definitely. And being able to to recognize that, you know, let's say that X y athlete and Y athlete are are next to each other and you notice that X athlete's performance tend to be inhibited around Y. because maybe they uh, they they've developed this perception that they the person is just a little bit better and so they're actually somehow not able to live up to their potential because because then they will break the story that they have
2: yeah
0: I think it's just really valuable for for a trainer to recognize that that human beings are are squishy emotional you know narrative bound things that that um that you you know we have biomechanics
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the idea is that, that, that essentially we tend to analogize the human body to a machine and we tend to think that like, you know, if we install stronger hamstrings, that the athlete is just going to perform better. Yeah. And not recognize that, that, uh, that how the athlete responds to the stimulus that's supposed to strengthen their hamstrings is dependent on a web of other connected variables. And emotion is, a, is, a, is actually a large part of that. Yeah. So, um, so that brings me to another subject um, that I wanted to, to get into you with you a little bit. Like the most recent conversation we had on social media was about recovery, mm-hmm. and actually I'm curious about the role of emotion in recovery. But I, I figured it'd be interesting to get uh, your take on how we can understand um, recovery for athletes better um, in general. Because I remember I've I've had issues with um, autoimmune conditions since I was uh, a teenager. Right? I have my um, vitiligo, and then and uh, My 20s have developed IBS um, and I've always been chronically sore from training, right? Um, And no no amount of training um, seems to get me regularly out of soreness. And then when I don't train for a period of time, I get sore from not training. (laughs) I get stagnant. So like occasionally, I'm less sore. Uh but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm always sore. And you know, this is a big limiter for athletes, right? Is you know not being able to 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 feel comfortable in your body and move.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: and so that's something you were talking to me about after the 15th of the seminars. I was like here's some of the ways that you can supplement and support yourself. So I was just curious to have you talk a little bit about about your work in that area and, and how you see um what are what are athletes miss, missing in the in the, uh, the the downside of the training cycle? Right, we, we stress and then then we have to recover from the stressor. Um,
1: I'm so glad that you brought this up um, because in I personally think that recovery is just as important as, or if not more important than um, the, training, the 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 act of training itself. Because um, the recovery is where you actually grow, right? The the the, the training part is where you stress your, your your system and you tear things down and you break things down and whatever, um, but it's the it's the recovery time where things actually get to build and repair and that's when you grow, um, and you make those connections and and um, you get to retain them. If you train too much and um, you don't let yourself get that rest time, then you actually end up deteriorating. You're you're like past that top part of the bell curve. Right. And so, um, there's so many different components to recovery, um, that some people get intimidated by it. But if you just kind of like add a little bit here, add a little bit there, um, it's not so intimidating, but uh, another part of it, just like training is that it's very customized. It's very individualized for each person, depending on what you need. Um, and also, Part of what you need is like it depends on what your what you're, what kind of training that you do and how your body responds to that training, right? So, for example, um, uh, part of my training is I actually have hired a good friend of mine who I trust to write my programs and and do like a, a regular like strength training thing or whatever for me like twice a week. And he's somebody that I trust and, you know, yes, I could write these programs myself and do these myself too, but I don't want the mental stress of doing it. And I just want someone to hold my hand and say, do these things, I'm gonna stand here and watch you while you do them, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's just, that's just what I need. Um, but the types of workouts that he gives me to do are very neurologically uh, demanding, uh, meaning that they hit all my blind spots right? They're, they're really good. They hit my blind spots. And oftentimes after these workouts, I need a nap. Like I feel like zonked out. I need a nap. And so, um, somebody else could be doing these same workout and they could feel totally fine after it, you know, and somebody else could, uh, do the, the same workout and they would feel really physically sore from it. And so it really depends on like what your response to your activity was. Right. Um, so, Sleep, I think, is a huge thing, right? And I know you've been optimizing your sleep a lot, but like sleep is a huge thing that takes a lot of um, attention to to kind of like see what you need, how much you need, um, what your environment needs to be. Um, Like for me, I prefer to sleep in a dark room um, I like whenever I travel I always carry electrical tape with me because I like tape up all the little like the lights from like the TV and the whatever I'm, I start unplugging things and I bring a hair clip to clip up the the curtains and all that kind of stuff so I like to sleep in a dark room with no noise you know and then um, the Um, like I have a whole like pillow fort set up, you know, in my bed. So I'm all like in this little burrito taco thing, like it's great. Right. Um, and I have, I wrote a a blog about it or there's a video on it. It's like, it's called the pillow box. And actually that helps me, um, be in like the most comfortable position where my joints are nice and aligned and, you know, I get a really good sleep. Um, but also like, uh, how much amount, like the amount of sleep that you get um, what time of day or what time in the day that you sleep and what time do you wake up? Are you consistent with it? Like some people are better with a consistent, like, let's just say eight hours of sleep, right? It doesn't matter when they go to bed. doesn't matter what they wake up. They just need those eight hours. Some people are better with consistent time. So go to bed at 10, wake up at six. Some people are better with, um, uh, going to bed at a consistent time. Some people are better with waking up at a consistent time right? And it just depends on what you need. And it, it does take a bit of experimentation for that. Um, there's also, uh, you know, like how much or like what to eat, you know, how how close to bedtime that you eat and hydrate and all that kind of stuff, the light, you know, how much lighting you get, what kind of lighting you get, what kind of exposure to um, visual light that you get, like if you're reading it on a Kindle versus reading a book, um, reading under um, like a bright light versus a dim light, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like there's so many different things. Temperature as well too for some people. Um, also, if you have a partner, if you're sleeping next to them, sometimes the partner is a person is is the, the thing that is preventing you from good sleep. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? There's I mean, obviously if they snore or or whatnot, or if they move around, or if just their energy of the, of of being too close to you, that can disrupt your sleep as well too. Um, I mean, I could go on for a long time just, just on the whole sleep thing. Um, and then there's, um, I mean, that's cause that's, that's not even mentioning like what time of year it is and what latitude you are. <laughs> um, but then there's also like, you know, we're talking about the supplementations, right? The supplementations will be more of like the physiological demands of what you might need from the recovery. Like for you, I suggested, I believe like magnesium and, and maybe like some silicone and um, uh, different types of collagen. Like right now collagen is a big hit for a lot of people. They're just like buying collagen, whatever it is, but they need to see what types of collagen that they need. Cause there's a lot of different types. Um, and I take specific type um, for, you know, my knee recovery to help my knee recover. Um, and just to help support that, the silicone also helps with the, with the knee as well too. Um, some people might need other supplementations. Um, you know, It really depends. And another thing with the supplements is that um, just because you need it now, doesn't mean you'll need it tomorrow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, that's probably the hardest thing about supplementation is, the, is realizing and understanding that your, de- your needs and demands for today will change tomorrow, next week, next month, next year just because you might need collagen for this whole month because you're training hard, doesn't mean you're gonna need it the month after. So you don't need to like go and buy, you know, a whole big old bulk bag of it and do an Amazon subscription, right? So um, you you wanna pay attention to what you're doing with your body and what what it might need. And sometimes for a lot of people, they might need help with this, right? And there's different ways to test for this. but usually you need somebody else to help you with it unless you're very in tune with your body. And this, this does take a lot of like, you gotta, you gotta work on that. Um, so there's the supplements there's um, there's light exposure and um, nature exposure. Right. I, I kind of categorize that into two different things because um, light exposure is one thing because there's different types of light um, just even sunlight, there's different types of, of light uh, frequencies, if you're getting like early morning sun versus afternoon sun versus like sun, uh, sundown sun, um, they all do different things for you. Like if, um, if I'm, if I've gotten sunburnt, like I got sunburnt. I have cheeks now, right. Um, I got sunburnt uh, uh, going on this last snowboarding trip, we snowboarded for five days straight, but it was like 50, 60 degrees each day. So we're just going out in t-shirts. So I get the reflection of the, you know, the, the, of the light from the snow get sunburned um one of the best recoveries for sunburn um other than the normal you know like drink water and sleep and you know al and all that kind of stuff is to get evening sun like the sun like the couple hours before the sun goes down go hang yeah. out with the sunset that's some of the best stuff that you can get which sounds contradictory for some people thinking oh you got sunburn so you should have less sun like, no 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 get the right type of sun
2: yeah uh, the way when you yeah, it there
1: absolutely Absolutely. Um, but then there's also like exposure to nature, right? So exposure to nature. Um, and I wrote this on my last Instagram post. Um, and we were just talking about like, obviously there's like the physical, different various types of physical stimulation of physiological stimulation with it. But then uh, the nature also has um, a ton of uh, negative ions, which will help balance out and ground you. And um, because the stuff that we, ha- that we do to our bodies is all, Uh, mostly positive ion stuff and just to make it simple right it's positive ion stuff so if we want to walk around um with a lot of positive ions that that kind of destroys our body a bit so we need the negative ions to help balance us out so like in um japan they have like forest bathing i mean that's everywhere right you go forest bathing you go walk in the ocean um like people are always you know talking about how surfers are so like chilled and lay back and you know all that kind of stuff a big part of it is because they spend so much time in the ocean right they're always in nature um people who go on hikes a lot right people who um are in the mountains or 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 whatnot like they're exposing themselves to a lot of nature so that's a, a huge thing to um to incorporate into just kind of like your regular routine if you don't live in nature um drive to nature like it's it's worth it right um there's also like the regular grounding type stuff. Like, so for example, I live in a house where um, uh, it's it's solar powered, right? And so solar powered means that, um, yes, I'm getting free electricity, but this whole house is like this giant battery. So I'm living in a giant battery, which is not good for me, right? So um, even though I have a lot of time outside, you know, doing my normal play stuff, um, I know that. When I'm sleeping, that's when I get the the biggest bang for my buck for recovery. So yeah. I bought a magnet pad um, for my bed, and so I sleep on a giant magnet, and that helps with the um, the, the positive ions from living in a battery. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, my car is like it's a it's a 2017, so it's <coughs> kind of like different. You know, it's it's battery up run right so. Um, and especially now with people buying Tesla's and things like that, you're sitting on top of the battery, like you need to help, like get some of that stuff out. So that's a really, um, important thing to do. Um, also with, um, uh, like diet and nutrition, right? A lot of people are eating things that are, um, including like, uh, like protein shakes and stuff like that. They're not good for your Omega balance. And so um, that's why people are are big proponents of, you know, taking omega-3, take fish oil, take this, take take that. And you don't necessarily need it, um, but some people do, right? And you can have too much omega-3. You can have too much fish oil, right? And so there's actually uh, a way that I learned from um, Dr. Jack Cruz like a long time ago about how to uh, check uh, using your physiology to see how your omega-3, uh, ratios are. So it's your omega-3 to omega, uh, six and nines, and it's supposed to be a one to one ratio, like one omega-3 to one omega-6 slash nine. But now with, um, the way that food is produced, uh, in these days, um, the average American is at like one in 50, which is really bad. Right. And so that's what, uh, that's a big cause of systemic inflammation, right? Right. So there's a way that um, Dr. Jack Cruz um, mentioned about how you can check your ratios without getting a test is you go into cold water, right? You go into cold water, you stay in it. You don't have to be completely submerged, right? But you just like go into cold water. It can be like thighs in or whatnot. And you look at your skin. You look at your skin and if it turns white, That's not good. That means your omegas are off. That means you need to start, you know, cutting out the junk food, start um, increasing omega three, start exercising more, you know, take better care of yourself, basically, right? Um, Because it means that your your body's going into hypothermia. It's taking away the resources to keep your your um, your limbs warm. It's it's bringing it to your core center because it's on survival mode, right? Um, If your skin turns red, that's a good sign. That means that your body's having a normal response to cold stimulus is trying to keep your body warm
0: Is this while you're in the water or once you're out of the water
1: well when you're in the water when you're in the water and it doesn't need to be ice cold right you can do this just with like any type of like relatively cold water like if even when you're standing in in the river Um, and you just kind of notice to see like how your skin turns and like it doesn't need to be, you know, up to your neck and ice or anything, but you can, if you want to do the whole Wim Hof thing, but there's benefits to doing prolonged, um, prolonged cold exposure. Um, that's, that's better for your physiology. And it's not just for the stress part. Like you can also work on the stress part because it's a mental exercise as well. Um, I was doing cold baths, like one hour cold baths, three times a week for about a year to just experiment on myself to see like what would happen. Um, and you, know, you, you learn a lot of stuff uh, that way. So um, by experimenting on yourself, because everybody is an N equals one, right? Just because it works for me, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So with recovery, um, yeah, there, there's, there's so many different things that work for so many different people, but you just have to see what kind of works for you. Um, there's also like the different type of light exposures and the frequency. Um, well, I should just say frequency, uh, exposure because frequency includes light and sound and, um, even like magnets and all that kind of stuff. Like it includes all of that. Um, and, uh, even with sound, there's different frequencies that are very healing. Um, are you allergic to cats by chance?
0: No, I don't really have any allergies that I know of.
1: Okay. Um, you might even want to experiment like being around a cat more. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, the cat's purr uh, yeah. is a frequency. So it's, I think it's between like 25 and 100 something like um, uh, hertz or something. Um, I forgot exactly what it is. But the, the frequency of a cat's purr has actually been scientifically found to help people heal. Interesting. Yeah so you might
0: I want to get a cat i <laughs> have a uh, uh an alaskan malamute husky mix she's uh she's very interested in eating cats my oh, my okay. daughter wants a cat but uh okay. you know, yeah that may not work
1: out maybe maybe, maybe just like
0: go to the- her in the house too yeah <laughs> <age of cats. laughs>
1: maybe just go to the animal shelter once a week
0: uh, <laughs> my dad has a lot of cats around his house so i can definitely go hang out with yeah. The cats.
1: There.
2: yeah <laughs> So yeah
1: there's, yeah, there's all those those different types of things, and there's also like I mean they're coming out with different technologies of things that will emit certain um, uh, energies and, and whatnot. There's crystals, I mean if you want to go that route, and oils, and you know all there's so many yeah there's so many yeah. different
0: things there. What I'm doing right now is I'm pretty I'm very disciplined around uh, when I go to bed and when I wake up pretty pretty well disciplined, and I I'm generally off my screen by nine. PM. And then, um, you know, I try to be in bed around 10 and then I read in bed and I have a, a bedside lamp. So the light is coming from down low instead of up above. And it's relatively, uh, relatively dim light. Um, I've been listening to Andrew Huberman's podcast, which I highly recommend. Um, Fantastic. so I've also been trying to get, you know, the moment I wake up, uh, after I make my coffee and go sit outside and, you know, stare towards the, towards the East um or you know as much as I can and then I also try to try to watch at least some of the sunset every night it's cool because where I'm where I live I can see Bellingham Bay and Lummi Island and the sun setting over Lummi Island so I can climb up a tree and watch the sunset on behind the island um it's pretty good so I'm I'm doing that and uh Think those are I think those are pretty key is the, that early light exposure and that late light exposure are particularly valuable and then controlling the amount of light that you're taking in um, later in the evening. Um, those have been the big things that I've been, that I've been focused on personally. So while we're on cold and light I want to ask you two more controversial questions. I, I, I'm curious if you have an opinion about this. Um, I haven't looked into the details on this stuff enough but um, uh, to have an opinion, but I'm curious if you have an opinion. There's two two things. One is um, specifically maybe for male clients who are trying to optimize their, their hormonal ratios. There's this idea that we that we can, the cold exposure can drive um, can drive testosterone production, and also infrared exposure specifically to the testes has been something that's been pr- uh, proposed yeah. by uh, by Ben Greenfield. I'm curious if you if you think there's any uh, any any legs to these ideas or or not.
1: Uh, theoretically, I think there are, um, because if let's just, let's just say, uh, human body as, as a whole, right. If you're going to be, if you're able to benefit from cold exposure or, um, or infrared light, just in general, it means that there's something in you that is not up to par. Right. Okay. And that's kind of with, I would say, I, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say every human being on this planet right now is not up to par of what we're supposed to. Like even the Schumann resonance right now, resonance right now, which is the 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 frequency of the Earth, it's at a much um, it's it's a much higher uh, uh, frequency than what it's supposed to be. Right, so um, everything's kind of off off kilter right now. So if any part of you can benefit from either cold therapy or infrared therapy. Um, then, if you make it more um, targeted, of course, it's going to like you know boost whatever you want it to boost. Like we're well, not necessarily what you whatever you want it to boost, but bring it up to what it's supposed to be.
0: Ice your balls and uh, and infrared.
2: <laughs> balls.
1: Yeah, exactly. Ice your balls and then just uh, and then heat them up with some infrared. <laughs> I have a friend. Oh. Who... Oh.
2: Good, ahead. good. Ahead.
1: Say like I have a friend who um, he uh, would because this is when he used to work at a, at a, at a gym that had this um, a rooftop that was just empty in Orange County and he would just like at the lunchtime he would just go up there just strip naked and just like uh, infrared his, uh, his all of his stuff up there with nobody <laughs> watching. <laughs> But he said i mean he claimed that it helped him a lot with everything so like he was i mean he used light therapy a lot for himself so it helped him with a lot of the issues that he was having so
0: yeah
1: theoretically makes sense.
0: yeah um so with cold exposure um so i, I do cold exposure uh, been a little bit less consistent but i was so i, I live next to a lake um He's so happy. i can walk over to the lake and get in the lake and it's quite cold still um it's not a warm lake right now um so cold exposure the last time that I checked, it was forty degrees um, in the lake, so I go in there and do a minute uh, every day. But um, one thing I'm curious about is the timing of that. So I know that like uh, Kelly Storette isn't a big fan of cold immersion directly after training because it potentially inhibits the uh, the inflammatory response, which you actually need in order to recover effectively. Um, I find that interesting i mean so one thing that i've noticed in my past is that i really like training in areas that have water as part of the training because i can just train a lot longer so if i can if i can jump in water and cool myself down a few times over the course of a training uh system I'm, i i can do another extra hour of training basically so i'm curious what you what you think about that and then the other thing is that um i imagine they're cold cold exposure also has to do with the cortisol cycle. Mm-hmm. And so doing it at specific times of the day might, uh, might have different impacts I'm curious when you think about that.
1: Yeah, so um, cold exposure after training, first of all, right? So it, again, it, it, I think it's gonna be depending on like a lot of different factors, right? Like how hot is the air? right? Like how hot is it, where you are, where you're, where you're, training? Um, what, um, how hot are you? Uh, what kind of training did you do? Um, what is your body going through? Does it, does it need the amount? It's basically, does it need the amount of, of inflammatory response that you got from the workout,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like if you, if you're looking for hypertrophy, you need the inflammatory response, right? You need to tear things down so you can build things up and that sort of thing. Um, if you are, um, recovering from an injury right and and things are trying to rebuild you may not want that much um, uh, inflammatory response because if you have too much of it it's going to cause that swelling and it's going to make you feel worse so you might want to you know regulate a little bit with with some um, cold therapy right Um, and then for some things like you don't want any uh, mm-hmm. inflammatory response at all so you just kind of jump in and usually those kind of things it's just it's just because it's too hot outside and you're overheating and then you want to rapidly cool yourself down yeah well, um,
2: cool. yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly you're just it's, it's temperature regulation at that point um, I like your idea of incorporating water with your workouts because then you kind of get the best of both worlds like I like the first thing that came to my mind as a really great workout was like cliff jumping, right? Because you have to climb up the chip, climb up and, 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 you know, run up the the cliff, get to the good spot, get yourself hyped up. And then you do this really cool thing and you flip or whatever, you land in this water, you you get your breathing exercises in all at the same time. And it's a very good mental stimulation. And then, you know, you get the cold water, you have to swim back to shore and do it all over again. And just kind of, you get these natural breaks in there too. But I think cliff jumping is like one of the the best things that you you can do. just because of everything that's involved with it. Um, Or like, you know, if you can hook a swing on or like a rope onto a a tree or something like that and just do that as well too. And just jump into water. Like that's fantastic for you. Um, (laughs) Like I'm getting excited for the retreat. Like this is gonna be so much fun. Uh, (laughs) I'm still scared of heights, but um, I'm I'm still gonna do it. It's gonna be fun. Um, And then, oh wait, what was the other question? It was cold
2: uh uh-huh. so like
0: like i'm i i find that cold exposure makes me very alert and i'm wondering about like do you when of the do you worry about kind of increasing alertness at the wrong times during the day ah. like, i would do cold exposure early in the morning but it's too cold still in the morning it's not fun so i usually do it in the middle of the afternoon And then I have like a little boost. It's actually really nice for that, that that like two o'clock, three o'clock lull that we get in energy. Like I can do my cold exposure right then and boom, the rest of the day goes really well for me. Yeah.
1: Um, And this is the answer to this is again, is going to be, it depends, right? So it depends on um, why you're doing the cold exposure, how long you're doing the cold, cold exposure and how you are doing the cold exposure Um, also like the state of your body as well too so for example if your body is already tired you're mentally tired your body is tired you actually need to like actually take a recovery day kind of thing you don't want to do cold exposure because your body's already in that like repair and rest mode um, and and adding that amount of stress that it needs to like go into survival mode even more is not going to be good for it right so if you're in the in the mode where you're like okay i need to just chill like hang out and just re- actually relax and, and and whatnot you don't want to give yourself um that cold exposure right um yeah. if you're going to be like that cold you want to be like mentally and physically ready for it right um because you're not trying to put yourself in a fight or flight stage every single day you're trying yeah. to right you're 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 you, what oh, you Right? Like you, you want to um, train yourself to be able to tolerate those things better, but you don't want to be putting yourself in danger all the time, right? It's kind yeah. of, like, I know some people get like angry. Huh?
0: For no some reason, I was thinking about uh Jordan Peterson and his encounter with Wim Hof. and I was like, is that really what Jordan needs right now? Right? <laughs> <laughs> <Wow. laughs> Hyper stressful <laughs> breathing combined with yeah. hyperstructural cold exposure, yeah, on a nerve that's trying to recover from uh from from benzodiazepine uh,
1: yeah no he doesn't need that <laughs> doesn't need that at all benzo is a hard one to get off of um, But yeah, so like if, if, uh, if you're ready for it, right, like, like if you, if you're only going in for like a minute and you're doing it for the mental boost, right, just kind of like the refresher, mental alertness boost thing, um, that's great to time it with the cortisol uh, when you're supposed to have a cortisol spike. So like just um, like three o'clock in the afternoon, right? Um, If you are wanting to do it in the morning for that cortisol spike instead of your coffee, you can train your body to get in that condition too. And that was actually something else I was going to bring up to you um, for your, uh, your recovery thing is have you cycled off coffee before? Like how is your coffee consumption? Is it it regular? Is it too regular? Um, Do you cycle off on and off it? Do you pay attention to, you know, if you need it or not? And if it's a need or a want or um, a crutch, you know, Uh, because it is, it is another supplement. So um but yeah like you could you could try to like replace the coffee with your normal hormones <laughs> your normal cortisol spike, and see how that works maybe go um i mean obviously you probably go for a walk just by going to go see the sunlight um but also like you could just you know just jump in the water for a quick second you know you don't even have to stay in there just go in there and just get your feet wet you know splash I, in water yeah. in
0: your face i want it's it's a desire to to add the cold water in the morning, but it's been it's been hard to motivate myself to do It's just you know the sun the sun isn't high enough in the morning or it hasn't been high enough in the morning to be over the place where I would go swim, yeah. um, and, and it's been cold and frosty. Um, but like is, uh, your, is your
1: body physically cold or is your body physically warm?
0: I'm cold, right? Is and you- I, it takes me a long time. So for long, so you know. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into my own history of stuff, but like I, I did probably pretty excessive calorie cutting combined with uh, extreme paleo combined with intermittent fasting around 2010 um, and my habitual body temperature dropped to about 96.8 degrees.
1: Ooh. Okay.
0: So that was not so good. So my habitual body temperature is good now, but it takes a long time still to come up in the morning. So I wake up and I feel cold for a while and I don't I don't get that sort of like, you know, like it, when I go train at three o'clock in the afternoon, my temper is 98.6 or 98.4, so it's, it's fine you now. But, uh, but I, I haven't been testing this, but I suspect that it's not warming up real quick in the morning. I feel like I'm very slow in the morning to get warmed up. I don't drink, um, I don't drink, cafe, I drink decaf coffee. I don't drink caffeinated coffee. So I, last year with the audio Conference, that was the most insane project that I've ever taken on. Um, Along with all the work that I was doing for my own company, so I ended up working. You know, I averaged probably a sixty-five and hour work week um, plus training plus being dad for three from March through November, um, and had multiple ninety-hour work weeks um, in there without a break. Um, And uh, I hit, yeah. So, so, anyways, towards the end of it, I was cycling stimulants to keep myself functional. So I would. I would do a week of caffeine followed by a week of uh, nicotine gum and uh, just go back and forth. Um, but I was trying to make sure that I wasn't becoming too habituated to any one. Right. Um, and then at the end of that, I went off all of the stimulants over the, over the Christmas break and just took myself completely off. And since then, I've only used decaf coffee. And then on training days, I'll have caffeinated coffee before training, you know, generally only once a week. Just for the day that I want to have like the highest level of performance. So I'm trying yeah. to treat it as an ergogenic, ergogenic aid rather than a habitual part of my lifestyle.
1: Good, good, good. Yeah. I think I find that that's also like really important too, because people will get um, habituated or, or addicted, either addicted or habituated or both with the caffeine and the nicotine, like, like uh, any, any of those kind of stimulants, right? So um, that, that's good to see that you're uh, not doing that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, and I haven't touched the nicotine gum since then. Uh, I don't really like the way that nicotine feels in the system. Um, it, it, was, it was useful to survive, but it's not something I, that I like habitually. I think I, I've done it um, when hunting, smoking um, a cigarette before hunting, I like an American Spirit cigarette, as part of a hunting ritual, and that was really interesting. And I feel like there's specific places where you could you could do it, but it definitely feels like. Um, should be treated as a very rare, special thing. Yes. You know, the one time I did it while hunting, I literally slept two hours before flying to Hawaii, and started a pig hunt at three o'clock in the morning. Ooh. So, so it was it was pretty amazing the impact it had on me at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't recommend any of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, try to it's live try to live in a like a, a good state most of the time and then use those things as a, 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 the occasional disruption. It always goes go back to like your normal state, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, you wanna, you yeah. don't wanna be habitually uh, needing stimulants, right? Like
2: yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: There's a pretty famous crew in the movement world where they constantly talk about how much coffee they drink <laughs> and how long the hours are that they train. It's like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe three triple to of espresso and uh, 40 hours of turning a week isn't actually optimal for your health.
1: I would die. <laughs> yeah. my, oh. my body actually um, responds really well to sleep. And it will tell me if I need sleep or not. And if I don't need sleep, or if I don't get the sleep that I need, and if I try to override it with caffeine, um, my body does this thing where it tells me to go f off, and it shuts down, and I go catatonic. I start getting headaches, and like nothing works anymore. And like if I try to have more caffeine, it just does it even more. So I'm like, okay, if I need a nap, I need a nap. Like that's that's all, literally all I need so i
0: wish i was like that i have a hard time falling but i always had a hard time falling asleep right and I, so i've tried to train myself to naps but it's like um it's inconsistent whether i fall asleep during a nap or not um my my and my daughter my oldest daughter is like that she like every night it's pain to get her sleep but my son is like if he's tired he's out he's just like it's amazing he's so he's so self-regulated like we come home and if there's a whole bedtime ritual and everything but he's been training he's been like he did a, a muay thai class and a and a parkour class and he's just too tired he just puts himself to bed He just he's like sorry guys i'm six years old like
2: that's amazing. i'm going straight
0: yeah. That's amazing. Uh,
2: yeah. Amazing. superpower <laughs> yeah, yeah that's that's great
0: that's great so yeah. we're um getting towards the, the end here so if people are really interested in your work um you've got it nicely above your head there strengththerapy.com so like therapy.com um and then
1: well, we've got like you go. instagram and facebook stuff down here i don't know if people can see it it's strength underscore therapy for instagram and then facebook's just strength therapy
2: excellent
0: so. um oh, we didn't talk about slowly method really briefly yeah. because um I, I, this came up. Your name came up within my Arlen learn Academy. There were people talking about you know, scoliosis, and the idea was that they're kind of stuck with it forever. And I don't know that much about it, but I know that your perspective on that is is pretty different. And so, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about Scolie Method before we're done, I, I really like yeah. people to be aware of that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so Scolie Method is. Um... I mean, it's, a, it's a method that I created that is a very holistic approach to scoliosis. Um, with traditional approaches to scoliosis, there's not very many options and all the options out there kind of suck. Um, a lot of times it's either gonna be um, surgery or racing. That's really uncomfortable that nobody wants to do or it's gonna be a lot of physical therapy that is forcing the body to do something that it's not ready for, or um, stretching it out to where it's not stable, right? So basically just putting it in, into positions where it doesn't wanna be. Um, there hasn't been any real um, methods out there that I know of that, that actually tackle the root cause of scoliosis because they kind of just generally accepted that scoliosis is either genetic or um, it's uh, idiopathic, meaning that they have no idea what it is. So they just kind of accepted that and they don't actually like look for it. But what I found is that there um, there are many different reasons why people can, ha- can get scoliosis. And um, you really have to kind of dig into the history of it. But there's a lot of different ways that you can actually uh, not only stop their scoliosis from progressing worse, but you can also reverse it Um, and then also teach people themselves how to maintain, um, their spine so that they don't, uh, have the scoliosis reoccur because scoliosis is actually just a symptom. Um, it's, it's kind of like a sneeze or cough. It's, it's a symptom, but you got to figure out what the reason of the sneeze or the cough is. And so Mm. that person's body just decides to, uh, react to whatever stimulus it was as, uh, with, with scoliosis, with their, with their spine being curved. And so, um, I've got a lot of different ways to figure out like, you know, what might, um, uh, what might contribute to their scoliosis and we can help people understand their scoliosis more and why their body's doing that, that thing. And then also how to reverse it, how to manage it and so on and so forth. And, um, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of, uh, like, I mean, a lot of the younger kids, right? So they're the teenagers and that, that, that sort of thing, but also with a lot of athletes. And um, one of the things with people who are active or athletes um, is that it's kind of like a it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because they've tried to keep their body as physically fit as they possibly can. But when um, it comes to reversing their scoliosis, um, we have to undo all the extra strengthening compensation that they've built over the years from the, from the training um, to reverse the scoliosis. So that's actually harder to, to do than it is for someone who's been inactive with their scoliosis. Um, so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but I, I try to tell people, Hey, you know what, these are what your options are. This is what's going to happen. Um, I'm never going to tell somebody that they have to stop their sport because if someone were to tell that to me, I would go to somebody else. Right. Um, which is what I have been doing. Um, so i I don't tell them that they have to stop their sport but i tell them that if they're going to be continuing to do their sport and their sport is actually something that is causing their scoliosis um, to worsen um i'll say well uh, then you have to make the choice of if you're gonna do this then you have to do this to to basically balance it out right if you're going to eat burgers every day you got to eat a salad every once in a while to to kind of balance it out and i use the example of usain bolt um because he's you know olympic um runner right He's got scoliosis and he spends 3 like at least 3 hours every single day doing his rehab exercises to to counter his uh, scoliosis because his running gives him scoliosis because running around a track you're always turning left. Yeah, always turning left. So he does like 3 hours of work a day just because he's got the scoliosis just so he can continue to run. And so when I bring up that example, um, my athletes typically understand, okay, cool. So you can still, do your sport, but you also have to do this other thing because this is how the sport is or how your body's reacting to the sport. Um, yeah, yeah so the, uh, there's a, there's a lot of different, um, things that can, that, that can contribute to somebody's scoliosis and not, not a single case is the same as anybody else's. Like some people Um, it's because of a scar that they got on their forehead when they were four and it just turned into scoliosis and then you just work on the scar and the whole scoliosis is gone, right? Um, But of course you have to treat the symptoms of the scoliosis afterwards. So sometimes it's also like an internal cause of the scoliosis. Like let's just say, for example, um, IBS, right? If you have like some type of digestive issue, um, colitis or whatever, sometimes that can turn into scoliosis. Um, uh, But you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. So in that course itself, um, we teach uh, a lot of different assessment tools and also a lot of different treatment tools, um, and also emotional stuff too, because the emotional stuff is sometimes um, a big factor for um, for scoliosis, especially with with uh, kids who got it when they're younger. So um, that's that's one of the courses that I teach that has um, a way to assess and treat. Um, uh, emotional components in regards to the physical body. But, um, I, I want that course to basically just kind of, um, get out there a bit more just so that people with scoliosis know that they have more options, um, that they, that their options aren't just limited to, um, surgery or which by the way, usually doesn't work to, it doesn't work out to the way that they think it will.
2: Um,
1: most people regret their surgeries. Um, yeah, so I want people to know that there's more options um, that are better and are non-surgical that actually work, and that scoliosis is not a hardware issue to just kind of patch up and move. Um, it's more of a software issue where you actually have to go in and reprogram yourself, and figure out what the bugs are, um, and debug yourself to um, so that your your hardware responds to that. If that makes any sense, so. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we figure out what the problems are and then the, the, the body will, will readjust itself um, almost if like magic. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's, there's, there's so much out there that people don't understand about scoliosis. Like I want it to be more of like an awareness educational thing um, to, to, to help people like encourage people to do more research on it and experiment with it more instead of just going to the same barbaric treatments that they have out there. But um, yeah, like I, I teach that course in person. Usually I teach it in Asia, but right now I'm not teaching in Asia because of the whole travel thing. So if people want me to put together a course in the US i I'd be ha- more than happy to. Um, but otherwise we have the course um, online where they can take it online as well. Um, it's taught in a language where anybody can learn from it. So you don't even need to know anatomy or biomechanics to um understand the course and learn from the course. So I've had people who um, suffer from scoliosis who have no medical background at all um, take that course and watch that course and um, they learn from it and they can do a self-treat method that I also teach on the course as well too. So I teach um, practitioners how to treat patients and I teach um, patients how to self-treat and self-manage and, and, and that sort of thing because I want people to be more empowered to take care of their own bodies instead of being um, Reliant
0: and dependent on uh, therapists. That's a wonderful message. I, mean, I think Thanks. understanding the software component of a lot of our movement and health and pain dysfunctions is a big, you know, theme that we've been talking about today, and just you know, the leading edge of what's happening in the um, in the health and fitness space in a lot of ways. Um, and I think you're doing amazing work in, in bringing these things and bringing uh, the play to it and uh, the understanding of systems. So thank you very much, Jackie, and I look forward to uh, more chances to communicate in the future and I'm sure we'll be able to stand in touch better uh, going forward.
1: Definitely, definitely. This has been great. Thank you so much, Ray.
0: Yeah. Adios. You. Hey, you reached the end of another Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, Christian Answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. Adios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.